Philippians chapter 1, verses 3 through 8, and then we'll have a time of prayer. Here's what the Bible says. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart. For you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. We're continuing our study in the book of Philippians, and we're in Philippians chapter 1, verses 3 through 8. Philippians chapter 1, verses 3 through 8, which I read from, and we'll be reading in part again as we work our way through this passage. I have a question for you as we get ready to take a look at this passage, and the question is this, what makes church church? What makes church churchy? What makes church church? When I was a kid on Biddle Road, there was church's chicken, and I think it's a taco, taco delight now. For a while, it was a wiener schnitzel. This shows you how long I've lived here. I think it was church's chicken. I always wanted to know the connection between church and the chicken restaurant. We never ate there. I don't know. What makes church church? Is it that we sit here and listen to somebody yammer on about the Bible for half an hour or so? I mean, do you do that anywhere else? Maybe you listen to the radio at work. Is it the teaching of the church? Is it is it because we need to learn about the Bible? It's an important book, and church is a place where you learn about the Bible. And where else can you learn about the Bible? It's, it's important to know the Bible. Maybe what makes church, church is we talk about the Bible. Or maybe it's the doctrine, the teachings of the church. Not that just merely that we teach from the Bible, but maybe church is church because we believe particular things. We believe God exists. We believe he created the world out of nothing. We believe everyone is a sinner. Yes, even you. We believe uh, all sinners receive forgiveness through Christ when they put their faith in him. Uh, we believe there are certain things that are right. When your light turns green, you go. Can we just all agree on this? And you say, well, what does this have to do with the Bible? I struggle with patience. The way you can help me overcome my sin of impatience is when the light turns green, would you just go? I mean, serious, get off your phone. Anyway, I don't know where that came from. We believe that certain things are right and certain things are wrong. We believe uh, you should only have a relationship, uh, physical, intimate relationship with your spouse. We believe you shouldn't kill people. We believe you shouldn't hate people. We believe you shouldn't judge people and separate yourselves from others based on race or heritage. We believe you should be generous. We believe we should be helpful to our community. So maybe it's our, our teachings, our, our doctrine, what we believe is right and wrong. Maybe it is. Uh, maybe being a church is because we help others. We uh, help the poor. We support missionaries. We feed my starving children. What, what, are all, what is it that makes a church church? The heartbeat. We're going to learn from our passage this morning. The heartbeat of what it means for a church to be a church is gospel friendships. The heartbeat, that is 
the, the lifeblood, the emotional connection, the connection between one another that is informed by the truth of the gospel is what makes church, church. And let, let's look at the passage and see if we can answer that question. The title of the message today is Good Friends. I'm going to give you the outline. The reason I give you the outline at the beginning, because I'll forget to do so with the rest of it, and some of you have, you're like filling your outline sheet out. Good friends have something in common. Good friends have confidence for the future, and good friends have genuine love. Good friends have something in common. Good friends have confidence for the future, and good friends have genuine love. Look again at verses 3, 4, and 5 of Philippians 1. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Good friends have something in common. We'll rephrase this for our passage. Good friends in the Lord have something in common, and that is the gospel. Good friends in the Lord have something in common, and that thing is the gospel. Some of you are old enough to have gone to a class reunion, or 30. I'm not saying who. You know who you are. Right? Some of you go to your class reunion, it's getting smaller. You go to a class reunion, what do you do? You go, you show up at your old high school gym or, or you rent a banquet facility, you stand around, and what do you do? You haven't seen these people since last reunion, some of whom you haven't seen since high school, and what do you do? Hey, do you remember when, and you tell old stories from high school from 30 years ago or 20 years ago, or in my case, from three years ago. <laughs> That's not funny. That's the truth. Okay. So you said, back, remember when, you remember when we won that game, you remember when we beat Grants Pass, you remember when, it's, and we go back to remember when. We have common history and a common experience and a common bond. And what Paul is doing, Paul the author of Philippians is doing for the people he's writing to, he's saying, hey, you remember when he's writing from a prison cell and he's writing to his friends and he's saying, hey, you are my friends because we have a common bond. Do you remember the gospel? Do you remember the ministry we had together where we, we talked about Jesus together and we encouraged one another because we all struggled with sin and we reminded each other we have forgiveness. And you remember when we went down to the river and we shared the gospel with those ladies and they all got saved? And Oh man, you remember, remember that time we were in jail and the doors flung open and the jailer was going to kill himself because we were all going to escape? And we said, hey no jailer, we're still here. You want to love Jesus? And he says, yeah. And we and he got saved. Do you remember all those good times? So what Paul has in common with these believers is gospel, the gospel ministry, and he's remembering that commonality, and he's doing it with great thankfulness. Look what he says. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you. Every time the Philippian believers come to mind, he goes, oh, thank you, Lord. I remember you. And he's in all of his prayers, he prays with joy because he has so much a love for these folks, primarily because they have a bond together in the gospel. He remembers their partnership in the gospel in verse 5. Together they worked in the ministry. They, they proclaimed the gospel to their community together. They, they were in meeting in homes together, reminding each other of the truth of the gospel. In his time in prison, the Philippian believers donated money to allow him to meet his needs while he was in prison. Prisons back then weren't quite as they are now. Back then, you had to supply your own funds for your food and your supplies and your clothing. And if you were in jail and you didn't have any friends or family, you could starve to death. 
And so while Paul was in prison, the Philippian believers, among others, would, would contribute to the needs he would have while he was in jail. And he said, I remember fondly, I remember with affection, our bond together, which is the gospel. And he recalls it often with joy. Look how he remembers them. Really interesting way of remembering. I'd, this might be helpful for us. I remember you in every prayer of mine, praying, praying in thankfulness. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you. So when he remembers them, he remembers them as a part of his praying, and he remembers them by being thankful. So when he's praying to God, he is moved to thankfulness when he remembers the Philippians. He's, Lord, I've got a couple of things I wanted to run by you. Wondered if maybe I could get out of jail. That would be cool. Thank you for the Philippians. And he would thank God for the Philippian believers. He was thankful to God in prayer, and he was moved in joy to be thankful to God about the Philippian believers. This is something that's interesting about, about Paul's praying. Think about your praying. Many of us pray, if not all of us pray from time to time. It depends maybe on the situation you're in. But I think if you're like me and if you are like most of us, most of our praying has to do with coming to God with things that we need. In, in fact, important things that we ought to be praying about. But what is significant about Paul's discussion of his friendship with the Philippians is he is saying his prayer to God regarding the Philippians was primarily a prayer of thankfulness. Here we have, think of it this way, in the throne room of heaven, you've got God the Father, you've got at his right hand who? Jesus. And what is Jesus doing all day long? Making intercession for you. And you say, well, I don't think I require intercession all the time. The Bible would suggest otherwise. So all day long, Jesus is just telling the Father over and over again, I love them, I love them. Oh, they blew it. I died for them. The devil then comes in, and he is telling the Father, they are lousy, useless, sinning again, absolutely hopeless. And the Son is saying to the devil, what? Talk to the hand, bro. Get out of here. I took care of this. So then you come into the throne room of heaven, and you're going to seek the Father through prayer. Whose prayer is yours most like? And Paul is saying, I want to pray to the Father in regard to you the way Jesus does, out of thankfulness and gratitude. Coming to the Father in the same way Jesus comes to the Father, seeking the best possible thing for others. May I suggest that sometimes in our prayers, we come to the Father seeking the best possible thing for us, and Lord, may you smite my neighbor. Or Lord, I, just, I can't even say, so Lord, you know, you know the deal with them. I'll let you handle him. And the question is, when we come to the Father in regard to our brothers and sisters in the Lord, do our prayers sound more like Christ's prayer, or do our prayers sound more like the accuser's prayer, if there is one at all? And Paul is saying, I am moved because of our common bond in the gospel to seek the Lord's favor for you because I am so thankful for you. Now, I know what some of you are saying. I know what you're saying. I, I know you're arguing with me. You say, that's because the Philippian believers were, were such good people. They were just nice. You don't know the kind of people I go to church with. 
How could I possibly be thankful for these people? He sat in my spot. Now I know what goes on, trust me. It's a, this, is, this is where we have to understand the gospel. What does the gospel say about you? Number one, what does the gospel say? You are made in the image of God, and God made you in particular to have relationship with you where you would spend all of time in joy and peace, being dependent on God for all you need. And we told God, no thank you. I'll handle my own business. And so we rebelled against God and thought, we'll provide for our own needs. That's called sin. So what the gospel tells us is God made us to have a relationship with him, and we said, I got better offers. And so we destroyed our relationship with God through rebellion and disobedience. And what the gospel says is God was going to give up on us. And what he did is he sent Jesus to die on the cross to cover over, to wipe away the rebellion that you and I have uh, committed against God. All it means is when we come back to God and say, Lord, I trust that what you did on the cross forgives all of my rebellion. God says, it does, you are forgiven. And that bond of relationship is restored between us and God. So now the relationship between us and God is defined as sinner who is forgiven of all sin. We then have hope of a future eternal with God because Jesus is raised from the dead. So what is our relationship with God now? Redeemed sinner. So once we believe in the gospel, we are never going to get away from the fact that we were saved from sin. We don't carry the penalty of sin. We don't have to carry the shame of sin. We don't have to carry the guilt of sin. But to pretend like it didn't happen is foolish. So this is how we do the gospel. I am thankful God gets along with me a redeemed sinner. And I will get along with you as long as you are not a sinner. So, see what the Philippians, we're saying, well, the reason Paul gets along with the Philippians so well is because they were just so well behaved. They weren't well behaved. How do we know they weren't well behaved? Because he preached the gospel to them. By definition, they're not well behaved. The reason Paul had bond with the Philippian believers is not because they were awesome. He had bond with the Philippian believers because they were both redeemed from not being awesome. The common thing they had together was save sinners. And so when one of the Philippian believers would act like a Philippian sinner, what would Paul do? Well, I can't hang around with you till you get your business in order. No, what would he, what would he do? The gospel brings grace to your life, and I'm going to bring grace too. Now I'm going to call a spade a spade. You need to knock that off. But it's going to, the relationships are informed by the gospel, which means we assume other people don't deserve relationship with us. It also means they assume you don't deserve relationship with them. The assumption is the reason we have a bond is not because we deserve each other. We have a bond because the gospel says we have commonality in Christ alone. Good friends in the Lord have this in common, the gospel. We are all redeemed sinners and we're thankful to God for it. Paul gives thanks and Paul has joy because of the people in his life, not the things in his life. We're going to see this throughout the book of Philippians as we try to emphasize and understand what does it mean to be people of gratitude and joy. Paul has gratitude and joy not because of his stuff, but because of his common 
relationship with friends in the gospel. What gives us joy? What brings us gratitude? Is it our stuff? Is it our plans? Is it our hopes? Is it our dreams? Or do we have gratitude and joy in the Lord because of the people in our lives that we have in common because of the gospel? Good friends in the Lord have something in common, that is the gospel. Now, thinking back to that uh, class reunion, reunion we were talking about earlier, like I said, one, all the conversations at that class reunion is, remember when? And you'll notice some of those friendships don't lead to, hey, you know what, we oughta. You know, and sometimes it'll be a little strange. You'll have somebody say, well, you'll meet up at the class reunion, hey, oh, you remember this? Hey, you know what, we ought to get together next weekend. You're going, oh, no, 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 no. We ought to not get together. The reason we get along is we see each other every 10 years. Remember when doesn't always lead to we oughta, but good friends in the Lord have confidence in the future. It's not just all about what, remember when, it's we have confidence in the future. Good friends in the Lord have confidence in the future. Look at verse, verses 6 and 7. Let me reread Philippians 1, verse 6 and 7. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart for you are all partakers with me of grace both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel good friends in the Lord have confidence in the future now when I was a kid I'm going to get in trouble with this I'll start writing your email now when I was a kid we had this thing it was called blood brothers see you can some of you yeah you're in trouble you're done so what was this? And This is what would happen. You go and you're hanging out with your pal and you get into a bit of trouble. Who knows what it is? But anyway, at the end of the day, you're both bleeding. I'm not going to say how this happened, but usually it was running from a dog you would let out of the neighbor's yard or who knows. But you end up, And so what you do, I don't even know we're allowed to do this nowadays, but you, you say, hey, we did something. We're bleeding together. This is awesome. You'd smear the blood on your hands. You'd shake hands. We're blood brothers, Right? What does that mean? We're going to be friends forever. Now, some of us were too uh, afraid to be blood brothers to men. You had to bleed. So you'd say, well, let's, let's spit in our hands. <laughs> now, you kids who are here, none of this is allowed nowadays. Okay, none of this is allowed. You'd spit in your hands. You'd shake hands. Man, we're going to be friends forever. And you're like eight, right? Now, where, where, did, those, where did those friendships go? Some of, some of you still have those friendships, but we're going to be best friends forever. Now, most of us, though, are older than 18 years old, realize friendships in life come and go. And some of those early friendships when we were, were kids, we said, wow, I thought we would know them forever. And they just fade to the past because of time and maybe distance. But look at Paul's confidence in his friendship with the Philippian believers. He is confident that they have hope for the future and hope for the future together. Good friends in the Lord have confidence for the future, not because they're of their friendship, not because of their personal bond. They have hope for the future because of God's faithfulness. I am sure of this, he says, he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. The future is unknown. Paul doesn't know if he's ever going to leave the prison he's sitting in. He has no idea if he's going to be martyred in prison, if he is going to be released and rearrested. The future is unknown. 
Not only that, the future is unknown in the city of Philippi, where these believers live. Philippi was an important city in the Roman uh, uh, Empire. Not only that, this city in particular had a very profound uh, worship of the emperor. That was a function of their culture. It was only a matter of time when these Philippian believers are going to be under pressure to abandon worship of Jesus to worship the emperor alone. And he knows that there will be a time in the near future when the believers in Philippi will be under pressure and maybe even persecution. So the future for Paul is completely unknown. Is he going to survive? Are the Philippian believers going to be under persecution? And if they are, are they going to endure? Will they make it? So the future in his mind is unknown, but the finish is known to God alone. And this is where his confidence lies in the work of God, he says, will be completed in you. In some ways, this is kind of an offhanded insult. I am so confident you are going to have a wonderful relationship with the Lord. Oh, not because of you at all. I am confident that Christ will do his work in you because he is faithful to do it. The finish is known, and God will complete his work. God here is the means by which we finish the race of walking with the Lord, and he is the reason, the basis we have for confidence in the future. It's not my ability to say no to sin. It's not your ability to be obedient. It is not your ability to to muster up faith and not doubt. Why do you have confidence for the future of God's work in your life? Because God is faithful. And that is the only reason for confidence. Think about your life if you're a Christian here. Have you ever blown it in your Christian life? No? Okay, well, this point's not going to land. Was that unknown to God? Did that catch God off guard? You're walking along, and all of a sudden you take a a U-turn and commit some really gnarly sin that if we knew about it, we wouldn't let you in on Sunday morning. We would. I'm, I'm making a point. You understand. And, and you think God was sitting there, whoa, whoa, my lands, I didn't see that coming. All right, plan B. Holy Spirit turns to him, dude, we're on plan Z on this one. Plan B was like 20 years ago. No, this doesn't catch him off guard at all. He's not shocked. He's not dismayed. He's not wondering whether or not the work of Christ will cover this additional sin. The confidence that we have that our life will finish in Christ is our confidence that God will finish the work. And this is Paul's confidence. Good friends in the Lord have confidence in the future, not because of one another, but because of the Lord. And this is Paul's confidence in his friends in Philippi. Look what this leads to, a very strange thing that may be somewhat surprising. He says, I'm sure this, God who began a good work will complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. Verse 7 it is right for me to feel this way about you all. Stop. Did you, were you listening? It's going to bother some of you. It is right for me to what? Feel. Some of us don't like the emotion thing. Come on. We're a church. Talk about doctrine. What do emotions have to do with it? Hey, it's in your Bible. He is saying it is right for me to have a feeling of affection, a feeling of love and gratefulness toward you because of God's work in your life. He's saying, I 
feel a particular way about you because of our commonality in the gospel and our confidence in God's work in your life. Look at the three things that generate this feeling of loving friendship towards these people. Number one, I hold you in my heart. He hold, in his heart, he holds them close as dear friends because of the confidence that he has that God will finish his work. He holds them in his heart. Secondly, he says, for you all are partakers with me of grace. I feel this way about you because you and I together are partaker, partakers together of grace. That sounds very religious. It's not. What does it mean to sit around together and say we need grace? What does that mean you're admitting together? That we need grace. What kinds of people need grace? Dirty, rotten sinners. Turns out that's all there is. Some of us aren't convinced. We're convinced that what we have in common with each other is we both need grace. Thankfully, I don't need it quite as much as you do. That, I mean, that's how we approach it. But we say, well, I can't hang out with that guy. The wheels are coming off his life as though the wheels aren't coming off of mine. I just have different wheels, and it just doesn't show up the way it does for him. He holds these people in his heart because what they have in common is their need of grace. Just a quick aside. You're saying, well, it seems like the whole sermon is an aside. Well, okay, quick an aside from the aside of a sermon. When was the last time the relationship you had with people in your church was defined by the fact that you both needed grace. Uh, think about it this way. Don't we come to church on purpose to try to send the message we don't need grace? I mean, isn't that sort of the point? To come here and sort of make sure everybody knows we have our act together? Make sure everybody, well, sure, doctrinally, I'm going to say I need grace, but I haven't needed it for like a month. I mean, I'm on a roll. But this is what Paul is saying. He said, I can't wait till we can get together and remind each other of how much grace we need right now in this moment, which means they have such a close relationship that they're willing to tell each other why they need grace. Do you think Paul would get discouraged in prison? Do you think he would doubt God's goodness? Do you think he might get discontented with having to live in prison instead of living somewhere else where he might have three square meals and a roof over his head? Do you think every now and then one of the believers from Philippi would have to go into Paul and say, guess what, Paul, you need grace because you're being lame right now? Or do you think Paul just always kept it dialed in, minded his P's and Q's, was well-behaved? No, one of the things we discover here is Paul's confidence in the Philippian believers is not in their ability to be well-behaved. It's in their ability to receive God's grace. He holds them in his heart because they are partakers together of God's grace, both in imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. The third thing that he extends to them by way of feeling is the partnership they have in the gospel. In his imprisonment, he knew they were continuing the work of the gospel in the city of Philippi, even when he was in prison. Good friends in the Lord have confidence in the future, not because of one another, but because of the work of God. I'm going to skip that part. Friends into the future. What happens if we grow apart? What happens when friendships 
grow apart. Look at verse 8. Good friends in the Lord have genuine love like Christ. God is my witness how I yearn for all of you with the affection of Jesus Christ. Because we want to say this. What we'd say is, listen, this, is, this sounds really great. Having friendships that are based on the gospel, having friendships that are, that are based on being honest about what's going on in our lives so we can apply the truth of God's grace to one another. Well, how do we do that over time? How do we maintain a closeness in the gospel together? And the answer is this, to have the affection of Christ Jesus in our hearts to extend to others. That's what he says in verse 8. God is my witness how I yearn for you all with the affection of Jesus Christ. Important to note, he doesn't say with all of my love. Notice he doesn't say that. He doesn't say, I, I love you with all of my heart, with all of my love, with all of my warm fuzzies. What he says is this, I yearn for you with what? The affection of Jesus Christ. Years ago, when I was in high school, there was a TV sh- a commercial, and it was an advertisement, I think, for a Nike, and there was a basketball player. I don't know if you've heard of him. His name is Michael Jordan. I heard he was pretty good. Um, the, the tagline of the commercial was, want to be like Mike. And there was a song. I'm not going to sing it because I can't remember. Anybody remember this commercial? Nobody can remember this commercial. Nobody wants to admit they've watched TV. I don't know. We just talked about the gospel. and I'm not going to admit I watched. Or you don't like Mike. Okay, so, so you want to be like Mike. So the question is, if you want to be like Michael Jordan, what do you have to be like? What are the things you need to be like? You might need to play basketball a certain way. You might need to wear a certain kind of clothing. You might need to have a certain kind of uh, amount of money or a certain kind of leadership. Maybe you're going to have to play golf. Uh, he's a golfer. What kind of thing do you want to do? I want to do this like Mike. And so what Paul wants us to say here is, what does it mean to be like Jesus? And this is the thing about being like Jesus. We're going to uh, explore the person of Christ that we might discover what we ought to be like is not going to the cafeteria. We don't get to pick and choose the things of Christ that we ought to be like. To be like Jesus is to be like all of Jesus. And here's something you need to know is absolutely true of Jesus. He has affection for his people. Jesus is moved with loving affection for his people. Christ loves us, not merely from a doctrinal standpoint, not merely from the Bible says he loves us standpoint. Jesus loves us with the kind of love that makes him not be able to talk to, oh man, you got so awesome kind of love. We don't think of Jesus this way, mostly because the pictures of him are so strange with the long flowing hair. Blue eyes, that's weird too. But Jesus is, is moved with affection for us. He feels towards us affectionately. And this is what Jesus is like. And what Paul is saying is, Jesus loves you with affectionate love. And I too, like Christ, love you with a love that is affectionate. That has a, a mutual bond that says, I want to be near you. Because Christ has saved us both. And look who he calls as his witness. Verse 8, God is my witness how I yearn for you all. Does he say, look how much I love you like Jesus. I show up and I give you knuckles on Sunday morning. 
No, who does he say is his witness as to whether or not he is moved with affection? He says, God is my witness. God can look into my heart, and he will judge whether or not I'm telling the truth. I love you with the affection of Christ. God is my witness. He can peer into my heart, and he knows my affections. He knows my desires. And with God as my witness, I'm telling you, I am moved with affection towards you. In fact, look how he says it. It's so strange. It's weird that this is in the Bible, or it's weird that we don't read it right. Somehow that's weird. How I yearn for you. I got to say, I can't miss it. This too. Last night, I don't know if you, last night was Saturday night. You're, gonna, you're not going to like this. I'm just telling you right now. Were you yearning to see the folks here this morning? Were you just getting into bed? Oh, I can't sleep. Oh, why won't the time go by? I can't wait to get there and see those people. Nobody? No, you were like me. Oh, my goodness. I stayed up to, I, we shouldn't have watched those last two episodes. Oh, why do we always binge on Saturday? Tomorrow, this isn't any, none of you guys. Half the room, just so you guys know, half the room, binge? I don't, the other half is like, the other half is like this. Oh, I'm so tired. You don't even know, you can't even hear me talking. I'm not even going to say what you were watching, but you stayed until till 2 o'clock in the morning because you just had to see the last episode, and then you go through the depression when you see it and you realize you can't watch it again, and then you realize there's church this morning. Right? And, and we, I wouldn't categorize most of us, let's just be honest, that we were yearning, chomping at the bit. Like Christmas Eve, I can't wait to get there and see those people. In fact, you may have even said this in your mind, oh man, I hope, man, I hope they're not, Hope they're not here. Okay, yesterday was the opening of deer season. I think maybe he's going to be hunting. I think maybe I got the clear. I don't think he's going to be here. Honey, let's go to church. Now, does this happen? Of course this happens. But this is what the gospel ought to be rewiring in our hearts is a yearning desire to see one another. And not because we're awesome, not because we bring something to the table. You, we look forward to hanging out with other people who need God's grace again. And what's funny is the people who need God's grace the most are probably the people we're avoiding this morning the most. You may ask yourself this question, who's avoiding you? Somebody is. If we're going to play the game of avoid the person who needs the grace, that means somebody's having somebody avoid them, and all of a sudden it's just a soap opera. God as my witness peers into our hearts, and he knows our affection. And what it means to be a body of believers is good friends in the Lord have genuine love for one another because Jesus genuinely loves the other folks we are gathering with. He's talking about, I hate to say this, he's talking about emotions. He's talking about the feels. He's talking about being moved with joy, moved with peace, rather than being moved away because other people in the room need grace just like we do. Good friends in the Lord have genuine love like Jesus. The absence of genuine love is a reflection of, of a missing element in our life that is not like Jesus. One thing that we do this, one reason we do this, I'm just going to put this out there for you to chew on. 
One reason we do this is we protect ourselves from relational pain by keeping a certain amount of distance with people. The problem with people is when we let them inside this, the confines of our security system, they can mess things up. And so one of the things we can tend to do is protect ourselves by keeping people at a distance. And I understand that, and we should have good boundaries, and we should understand boundaries. We should understand where people can be with us relationally. However, if we keep people at such a distance that we miss that affectionate yearning for one another, we will miss much of the joy of Christ-like relationship with one another. Everybody has different capacities relationally. Some of us show up today, and we want to talk to 50 people, and others of us want to show up and just talk to that one person, and that's okay. But if we always keep people at arm's length, we're going to miss some of the most profound joys of what it means to be a body of believers. Good friends in the Lord have something in common. What is it? The gospel. A bunch of sinners getting in a room talking about how much they need Jesus' grace again today. Not just when we got saved, but how much we need it again today. Good friends in the Lord have confidence for the future. Confidence that God will accomplish his work in one another. One quick aside on verse 6. Look at verse 6 with me again. I want to bring your attention to this because many of us have this cross-stitched on a pillow. I am sure of this. He who began a good work in you will bring it to the completion. If I could read. I could read it if I had my pillow. I am sure of this, he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. Everywhere this verse is mentioned in the Bible, that would be this one spot. (laughs) Everywhere this verse is mentioned in the Bible, the person is not talking about themselves. The last time you brought this verse to mind, did it have to do with you or somebody else? Everywhere this verse is mentioned in the Bible, it's somebody talking about somebody else. So yes, you blow it, and you need God's grace applied to your heart again. God, you're not done with me yet. You should take comfort in that. However, the primary reason this verse is in your Bible is to remind you that guy next to you isn't finished yet. The primary application of this verse to your heart is that you might have gracious patience for that Yahoo next to you who can't get his act together, and that he might have patience with you. Good friends, have confidence in the future, in the Lord, for one another, and finally, good friends, in the Lord, have genuine love for one another. A couple of quick questions, and then we're going to close, we're going to sing two or three worship songs to celebrate the gospel of Christ together. What brings you gratitude and joy in your life? Right now, in, in your heart, what is it that brings you gratitude and joy? And the question from the scripture, we must ask ourselves, is it things or is it people? When we were made in the image of God, we were primarily designed to experience gratitude and joy as a function of relationships, not as a function of our stuff. The Bible should bring our minds and our hearts to a place of repentance and say, God, I need to rewire, I need to rethink my life. Why is all my gratitude and joy aimed at the things of my life? What do I need to do to seek gratitude and joy by developing gospel-informed friendships? Look at verse 3 again. I thank my God 
for all of you in my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you. Who are your friends? Your friends are the ones you pray for. The, prayer, your, the, the people you pray for are the ones who are your friends. You might have lots of other friends, but the fact is, the Bible here draws a very sharp point here. It says, when we are moved by the gospel in relationship, we pray for those that we have affection for. We are thankful to God for those. So a couple of quick questions. When we pray for our friends, it's our way of reminding ourselves, I don't trust them with their own sanctification. I don't trust that you're going to stay faithful, so I'm going to pray that God keeps you faithful. And it puts the right emphasis on my confidence. It's not in you. My confidence is in God. And we ought to be praying for one another that we would know that God will continue his faithful work in us. Another way to ask this question might be this. Again, not to make you feel bad, but just to get you to think. Who out there that you know needs to have a closer relationship with God and the primary means that they are going to have a closer relationship with God is you are going to pray for their relationship with God, whether they know about it or not. Who are your friends? It's those you pray for and those you thank God for. These last two are really convicting, so I'm deciding whether or not I'm just going to close in prayer. I'm just going to pick one. Um, so we're living in a community of grace. By a community of grace, meaning he says they have partnership in the gospel is what Paul defines that is. And what he means is, like we said before, we're coming together as a body of believers in order to extend grace to one another because we need grace again from one another because again this week didn't go the way it ought to have gone. So the question is this, am I extending grace to others in such a way that I can tell when others are coming to me to experience that grace? Or is the grace valve shut off in my life? Are others yearning to have connection with me because they know when they have connection with me, they will experience God's grace? I know that's hard to evaluate, but I just want you to think about your own relationships. When people encounter me, my family, my friends, my coworkers, uh, the folks in church with me, am I doing what I need to do in Christ to extend grace to them? Maybe another put, way of putting it is this way. When people come and experience relationship with me, is there a hope that they will experience the grace of Christ? Or after relationship with me, will they leave and need to go find some grace in Christ? This is just a way to evaluate how we interact with others. Are we providing grace to others as the fuel for the relationship we have with one another? And maybe we have room there to grow in the grace of Christ. Good friends have something in common, the gospel. Good friends in the Lord have confidence for the future, the Lord. And good friends have genuine love, the love of Christ.